Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Music gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. There's a quote from Plato, the Athenian philosopher during the classical period. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today as our guest, like Plato, is playing the role of pioneer, innovator, and ultimately, through their leadership, ensuring the survival and renaissance of the old world to the new. Our guest is Sophie Gallis, Managing Director of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. She is also on the board of the Symphony Services International, a member of the Advisory Council of the Harvard Business Review, the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and the CEO Institute in Australia. Sophie was named one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence for 2015 and 2019. She was previously the CEO of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, Executive Director of the Quebec Symphony Orchestra, and Artistic Director of the Orford Arts Centre in Canada. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Sophie gives us a unique insight into one of the world's leading orchestras, how they have broken with tradition, creating a new DNA, transcending from simply performing the finest pieces of classical music to capturing new audiences and winning their hearts. Through partnerships with sport, film and crossovers of the likes of Elton John and ultimately bringing nations together. Sophie calls for radical change for the survival of the performing arts industry, arguably one of the most impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Finally, she shares how, by being inventive, embracing technology, and preparing for a different future, qualities not new to the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra have allowed them to adapt, broaden their reach to over five continents, and keep the music playing. So sit back and enjoy. The show must go on. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Where did the interest for music come from? Where did the love affair come from? And maybe can you talk us through how hard is it to become a professional in this game? It is quite hard. Um, I think I, I don't know, I fell into the soup. Or <laughs> I enjoyed music. Uh, my father uh, used to play the piano. And I remember being one years, year old and listening to recording of Chopin instead of having a lullaby <laughs> in the evening to go to sleep. And um, it came as a natural to uh, learn the flute. And I never doubted that I wanted to be a musician. I can't explain it. It's just, it, and my parents were very um, encouraging and helped me get there. Uh, at the age of 17, 
I left Canada, where I, I grew up in Montreal, mm -hmm. a French-Canadian. I'm sure you can hear my accent. Yes. And I left to go to Germany, where I had a position with um, a principal flute in a German orchestra. And they were quite surprised because all around the world, when you do audition, it's not like in the business world, you will do interview, background check, etc. <laughs> in the music world, you are behind a black curtain. You're a number. So the panel that uh, hears you, but they don't see you and they don't ask you any questions. So at the end of the day, I won the audition and they were quite surprised to see that I was not a German man but actually a small <laughs> Canadian girl who did not speak German. So I learned German uh, on the job That's that's, <laughs> and moved to Germany. And this was the start of an amazing adventure in the music world. Um, so if I fast forward six years later, unfortunately discovered that I, I have a chronic disease, asthma, and it's actually not really good if you're a flutist, a flautist, as you say here in Australia, yeah. um, because you need lung capacity. And at some point, uh, if you're asthmatic, you, you have less lung capacity. So I had to make a choice. And at that point, I decided that I was in love with music. It was my passion and I would stay in this world. And that's where I started my journey in management. And how did that begin? I have a PhD in musicology. So I've studied history and um, the science of music, um, taught in different universities, and now I've been managing for more than 27 years in a number one position in music organization. So I'm really lucky. I've worked in my with my passion in the world I love all my life, and I've worked in uh, Europe, North America, and now Australia. And we moved seven years ago here. Now. Um, permanent resident on my way to becoming a citizen. <laughs> For a lot of Australians, obviously, we know the the challenges one faces when becoming a professional, say, sportsman, and the discipline involved to get to the very, very top. What is the discipline and the sacrifice one makes as a musician to get into a world-class orchestra? And also, why do I want to get into orchestra as opposed to pursuing a solo career? Well, it's a good question. Um, if you are a musician, you have to actually, um, to get to uh, the end of your study, you have to put in many, many, many hours. It's like, uh, yeah, there's a strong parallel with sports and professional sports or, you know, doing the, you know, being a, a member of an Olympic team. You have to train, take care of your diet, make sure that you're uh, rested, focused. So you have to make a lot of sacrifice. Um, if you really want to achieve uh, top level, you will focus on that and not on partying and, uh, and other things. Um, and then you have a personality that will, and a level of proficiency that will make you a soloist or will uh, make you uh, someone who will go more towards an orchestra. So it's a question of personality, question of strength. And uh, when you work in an orchestra, you need to want to work in collaboration because the best orchestra, if you look at a section of, let's say, violence, they push and pull their, their bow at the same time precisely. Yeah. And so there's no ego there. No one can say, well, I'm the fastest, I'm the biggest, whatever, and I'll be pushing or pulling in the other way. <laughs> So you have to be extremely attuned to your colleagues and to what the conductor on the podium is trying to achieve because he's the leader of the band at that point. And that's that's something that you really have to 
it has to be part of your DNA. And when you audition for an orchestra, like top orchestras with like the MSO or New York Phil or others, yes. a lot of people want that job. So you have a lot of competition. And so you, you can be proud when you win an audition. <laughs> so when you got the audition, can I just ask, was there anybody who noticed you earlier on to really encourage you? And also when you made the move across, you're like, you know, well, you say 17, you've left North America and you've moved across to Europe. That's a, that's a big a big challenge. Oh, I can tell you my parents were super stressed. <laughs> Letting the, and at that point, internet was not there. <laughs> and phone calls were quite expensive. That's so right. um, they actually, my parents, insisted that instead of um, renting an apartment, that I rent a room with a family. And I did that. And that family is still, um, we're still friends. They're like a second family to me. So they really, uh, they had kids or uh, young adults my age, uh, a girl and a boy, and they, um, they've, we've kept in touch and they've helped me uh, tremendously. Um, and I've been lucky all my life. I've had uh, friends or mentors, people helping me um, being advocates. It's quite important, I think. And I, nowadays I try to do exactly the same, uh, not just be the mentor of someone, but actually be a sponsor. So important to help people uh, grow and achieve different uh, goals. Uh, so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, I had wonderful people like my, my flute teacher in Canada at the conservatory was very um, helpful and uh, talked a lot about life, not just about the flute and how to play these notes <laughs> and how to behave. And I think that I learned a while ago that emotional intelligence is actually king. It's important to be intelligent, but um, being able to talk to others, get them to, uh, I don't know, to buy in an idea or a plan or something is so important. And in an orchestra, emotional intelligence, again, is supremely important. And, and the analogy with sport, a great orchestra is like a great team. It's made of champions, but actually it's not the ego of one that will make you win the game. It's how they play as a team. I was watching the footy last night, return to, <laughs> to real life, Collingwoods and the Tigers. And uh, oh, it, was, it was interesting. It finished at, it was a draw. Like, whoa, this is 2020. Yeah, low score as well, 36 all, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, it was. It was still the last seconds of the match. But we could see great sportsmanship on both sides. Uh, two different teams, two different mentality. But anyway, so it was... I was quite pleased to see that. And it reminds me of my orchestra, and I'm looking forward to seeing them playing um, to a live audience on stage at some point in the future. So, Sophie, you made your move back to, to Canada. Can you talk us through the journey? So I came back to um, Canada. Um, I worked with the uh, Quebec Arts Council in charge of all their music grants. I've worked with three universities there teaching music, musicology, having a PhD in musicology. That's what you normally do. Um, And then I segued into management and I manage one of the top music academy with a major classic music festival, one of the three uh, top three classic festival in Canada for a while. Okay. So always in the music industry. And then I moved from this uh, Orford Arts Centre and offered festival 
to the Quebec Symphony, so the Orchestre Symphonique de Québec, okay. as we say in French. Yep. And um, had pleasure managing uh, this orchestra, which is one of the top five orchestra in Canada. There's 48 orchestras, so wow. being top five is significant. Um, <laughs> well, if you say top five in, in Australia, there's six orchestras. So <laughs> not exactly the same. Um, I managed the uh, Orchestre Symphonique de Québec. Um, and this is an orchestra that is the oldest in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, long tradition, uh, engaged in its community, um, tours regionally, did a lot of fun things there. Then I was headhunted to come to Queensland. And as I'm curious by nature, I, I have friends around the world and I had never been to Australia. Right. And in my personal life, um, my husband has sold his company. Our children were at the end of their studies. So it was the perfect time to, for a new adventure. So we decided to move to Queensland and I became the CEO of the QSO. Great orchestra, uh, wonderful people, wonderful musicians. I was hired to implement a strategic plan, which I crafted the plan. Um, they had very specific goals in mind, and I had specific KPIs. We had a goal of achieving all these, um, these desired outcomes in five years. Mm -hmm. And after two years and a half, I came to the board and I said, well, here, we've ticked all the boxes. So what we were supposed to take five years to do, we've achieved now. And I'm actually not sure that I'm, I, they were happy for me to stay and I could have stayed. And, but the, um, the, the challenge would not have been, uh, I, was at, I was torn, yeah. what do I do? And, yeah. and then a, a Melbourne Symphony came and an American orchestra at the same time came and, and knock on the door and the, um, a chat with the chair of the MSO convinced me because he's passionate about music education and it's something I'm also passionate about. I believe music education helps uh, to make better society, helps in the development of human being. And um, I will, to my, to my last day on earth, um, I will really um, advocate for music to be taught in school everywhere around the world which was really cool in Queensland. It's part of the curriculum, public school, music is taught everywhere. In Victoria, not so much. So I thought, oh, that's a challenge. That's yeah, something right. I could maybe make a difference and work on transforming this organization. At the same time, MSO was also an amazingly great orchestra, one of the top orchestras in the world, so <laughs> quite attractive. And with quite a challenge financially, uh, some bad years in the past, which had led the orchestra to deplete its reserve and not be in a so strong financial position. So I, I like a challenge, and I decided to uh, to make the move. And were you the um, the first female CEO the MSOs ever had? Yes. Okay. So what, so what? So what? did you inherit? Okay. Let's, let's let's roll it back a bit. So you're you're in Queensland. And I think during that time, you've been nominated by the AFR, one of the 100 yes. Women of Influence. So, you know, your name's getting out there and you're building all these relationships. And then you're caught, all right, do I stay here because I've done the job or is there another opportunity to really stretch myself and the knock on the door comes. You've also got a pitch for the CEO role. What was the grand plan? 
Well, when I came in the room and I was interviewed, I uh, was asked to present a fake... You weren't behind the curtain this time either, were you? <laughs> straight strategic plan. And I spoke about, you know, you don't shrink to greatness. The MSO is a great orchestra. Yes, there are financial issues to tackle. There are some cultural issues to tackle because uh, you don't find it's it's not just about numbers. It's about individuals. It's yeah. about what has happened, the story behind all of that. So mm-hmm. I, I agreed that there, or I pointed out to the fact that there must be some cultural issues, some financial issues. But at the end of the day, it's an amazing orchestra. And that, you cannot fake it. You cannot, you cannot buy it. It has to be there. There's a in the, the the wheel of our musicians, they come on stage and they want to give their best. They want to work with their colleague, and they're really proud. And they're in my face when they don't like a composer, a conductor, or you know, if they think someone has not done as well as they should. Uh, so that kind of drive uh, was something that I thought we could bank on and actually build the strategy around the the development for the orchestra and. Going from a product-focused organization towards an audience-focused organization, so diversity of customer, of audience, and listening to needs, and um, actually engaging in a different way. So when we program, we can program as if we were in a void and say, well, let's do this beautiful Beethoven piece and this and that, and you will come just because we're the MSO. Or you can say, well... Let's try to engage with our customer, the audience, our society, and make a meaningful commitment or meaningful um, bring something different. So, for example, if it's Anzac Day, why don't we program around that? Why don't we be part of it? So, from performing in the down service, which we do, uh, to having this waltzing Matilda digital project, is it's, that's where you can stand and be proud Australian and say, well, we've done our part in music, but that, that's a way to make it happen. Uh, it's NADOC week, it's, it's grand final. So we've partnered my first year with the AFL and we did this project with the AFL where <laughs> um, they wanted to, um, to do a project with music. So we commissioned a composer who wrote a beautiful music that would go with the grand, 2010 grand final, which was the draw, St. Kilda Collingwood. Collingwood, yeah, that's right. And um, <laughs> really dramatic. Yeah. And so we had, it's like on screen the match with comments from the match and then some music uh, intertwined with this and the music, of course, followed what was happening on screen. Um, it was at the Art Centre. The program of the concert, it was like a footy program where you had all your little you know, your players, like a card. And we said, I don't know, Principal Oboe drafted in 19 da-da-da, you know. <laughs> and E. Barracks for the Western Bulldog or for the St. Kilda or whatever. People were allowed to come with their scarves um, and we were selling um, little pies and things like that. So when you come to the concert, that's not normal. You don't come with your scarf. And so that was a fun adventure and it really... It sold out. It was an amazing event, and so we've been we've been working with the AFL on other projects. 
but we've uh, recorded all the song, the theme song of every team with our musician in the studio, and they're wearing the scarves, and and it's been and so and they're real fan, they're real fan of these teams, and this will be aired on Channel 7 and um, other media, I don't remember, but the, it's, it's going to have some visibility, I think. So anyway, that's that's just an example yep. of engaging with your customers in a different way where you listen and you are attuned to what they like, what they what's important for them. So for example, last year in 2019, we performed just before the Melbourne Cup on the ground. <laughs> it was an amazing adventure. And that was seen by hundreds of thousands in Australia, but around the world too. So it's we are still playing amazing classic core music. We're doing different specials and we're trying to engage more and more and more and more with our audience, our community. And that is, I think, the, the big shift in the organization, the transformation. And as it has led to four good year revenue, we went from 27 million to 40 million. Can I ask of you, um, do you think you got more license to be more creative in the new world as opposed to the old world, Europe? Yes, for sure. Rejoicing in that? New country and uh, fine Australians are willing to take chances or to, to embark on an adventure. Well, if you work in Europe, there's a stronger hierarchy, there's a stronger sense of the past, your history, what you represent, and there's a lot of, oh no, we're blah, 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 we can't do this. Uh, or <laughs> so, so that that's something that's very nice that we can see here. There's no, um, not a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. And so I've been talking to the boards, to the musician, to my team, and I've found that with all these groups, everyone has been well. There's always individual who will not follow you on a journey, but the vast majority have been very willing to go down that path. You know, you talked about the Aussie rules last night, and there's a table. There's Collingwood versus Richmond, and there's you know, the, the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth teams, etc. How do we look at the table of orchestras in the world and how is it formulated? When you win the grand final, you are considered, uh, you're reviewed on what you do and people will say that you're, you know, top of the mountain and you don't declare, well, you could declare yourself top of the mountain but <laughs> or king of the mountain and it would probably not do much. It's international reviews. Okay. So the MSO has good year, bad year, around 70 to 100 international articles, reviews written about us, about um, either concert we give abroad or recording that we've done. So we're judged on what we do. And it's the quality of musicians. I would also say that and that's something coming from outside, from the international world. If we want to compete, let's say, with Berlin Philharmonic or Concert Gebau or London Symphony or New York Phil, the top orchestra, let's say top five or whatever, we're probably a couple of decades or hundreds of years um, late because they've been perfecting in Germany, for example, the art of playing uh, Beethoven or Mozart or the classic repertoire in a certain way for decades. Right. In Australia, the history is a little shorter, yeah. <laughs> but it actually brings uh, the opportunity to have a certain DNA, a certain flavor, and add some values to what we do. And it, I, f- I feel it when I hear the MSO playing. There's a certain um, 
way of working together. The mateship is probably uh, something I can hear when hearing the musicians play. And that's, that's so um, soul touching. It is, um, so it, and it is recognized. You don't need a PhD in music to say, wow, I, you know, I feel I'm impacted by this music. I feel great, I elated. Um, and it's maybe why we have been successful in this um, COVID-19 uh, period in engaging with a lot of people around the world who have felt the need for music to heal, to, um, to just uh, break solitude and being confined and, and in lockdown around the world and having no music. And so people are usually come to concerts or the arts uh, because we want to be um, sharing some experience, experiencing uh, feelings, new things, and um, that's probably missing a lot. Anyway, I miss it. <laughs> so the, the second best thing is to go online and be able to, to share via a screen or a, a computer some beautiful music and, and feel part of it. That's where we have engaged them. Um, and I, I was so uh, keen that we would not stop the music when COVID-19 happened and we all went in lockdown and state of emergency and, and gathering of more than 500 and then 100 and then 10 and then <laughs> uh, two. <laughs> that, that's pretty difficult for an orchestra because suddenly you can't, you can't gather together and, and perform. You cannot perform in front of a live audience. So this happened in Victoria on March 16th. And um, on that night, we live streamed from the art center, the Emerald, the stage, to um, an empty audience, or an empty hall, uh, but actually uh, an amazingly large audience. By the end of the, the concert on that night, we had reached 5,500 people, which is more than double the, the size of the venue. And uh, a couple of days later, um, I think we were at 200,000 or something like that. So that had seen this performance around the world. And we were quite lucky. It happened at the time where everyone else around the world went dark. So we, we were one of the last <laughs> to perform live music and share it with many around the world. So that, that's made the, the start of this adventure quite fascinating. So what's the discussions like in, in, the, in the office about you know, how do we keep this moving forward? Because end of the day, like the football you mentioned earlier, you need crowds to pay the fees. You need the revenue to be going year on year and you need the, the focus on to bring the high quality people to, you know, yeah. to join. So you're caught in a bit of a spot like all arts at the moment and all sporting organisations. So where, where's your thinking at and... What's the impact of digital or what's the impact of thinking outside the box coming into play? It was quite a challenge. When COVID-19 happened, we could see around the world how this was going in China and other countries. So I could see my colleagues in other orchestras shutting down and sending their people home. So we, we made a plan saying, okay, we have to take care of our people. Um, we have to keep the music going. So this was a, a decision we made with the board, with the musician, that it was really important. And then um, to prepare for a different future. And yes, we are impacted. We are one of the industries that are the most impacted by this interruption, this mm -hmm. disruption. Um, the MSO, it's 62% of our revenues that are earned revenues. So ticket sales, subscription, 
donations, sponsorship, etc. So you unfortunately, um, <laughs> we started the year looking at a budget of $40 million in revenues. And by now, we're, we've lost 50% of our revenues. So when you are faced with that, you have very difficult decisions to make. And so we have been working to talk to the government because there's a portion of our revenues that is public funding. Um, and they were, um, I must say, I'm, I'm very grateful and thankful that they have maintained our core funding. And even though we were not delivering concerts and so on, and then the JobKeeper program happened, which allowed us also to make sure that our 408 employees would remain employed. No one has, has lost their job. And it's not great to get only that as a, as a revenue suddenly, yeah. but it's actually way better than losing your job or queuing at Centrelink, I would say. Yes. Um, so this was really difficult, a difficult uh, time. We have been talking to our musicians a lot in that period, and now they're back at work, um, but albeit in a part-time mode, because everything, like normally, if you have an EBA in agreement with your musician, it's yeah. about playing on stage in front of live audience. Suddenly, none of that is happening. So you have to reinvent uh, what you're going to do with them and follow uh, the rules, regulations, social distancing, uh, respect all of that. So it's been an adventure, but we've kept the music going. We've been delivering every week programs uh, at, at the start with the full orchestra and at some point with only two, three or four musicians or one musician at a time um, film in the studio. And then we would put together a mosaic of <laughs> of you know, different uh, lines of music. So the example of the, of on Anzac weekend, we did the um, Watson Matilda project. So we asked Australians around the world to participate right. and do a recording of Watson Matilda. So we commissioned a composer to wrote an arrangement. And uh, we were lucky more than 300 people sent us recording of their part of Watson Matilda. And then we had uh, five of our musicians film separately so it's like a mosaic when you look at it and by now more than 200,000 people watch watching Matilda online um, and so that that's what we've been doing trying to be creative are you engaging with more audience now as a result has that been some revelation well they yes we have audiences around the world that are following what we do on a weekly basis okay. and we've started receiving donations small donation, but from all around the world. So 14 countries by now. Um, so it's, it's quite cool. And that leads us to think about the future where we are convinced that hopefully at some point in the not so far future, we'll be back on stage um, with our musician and some, I don't know what size audience, but some audience in front of us. But we want to keep doing these recording and actually um, developing a, a like a platform where people could pay a membership fee and then get access to these amazing performances, which would allow you to, um, for example, if you have missed a concert, to be able to still see it from your home and enjoy a glass of wine watching the concert and, and not missing the music. You surely wouldn't be the only arts organisation going live streaming around the world. We've seen theatre in the UK, we've seen other organisations do it and get tremendous results and, and, and donations as results also coming in. 
So if I do have the the um, the opportunity to sit at home on a Saturday evening with a glass of wine, I also have choice. Why am I going to choose the MSO to listen to Mozart or whatever it's going to be? Well, because we're great. <laughs> <laughs> It's, you'll, you'll be experiencing something amazing. And as when I was talking about the Australian flavor or DNA, um, for example, um, in the last uh, two years and a half, I've negotiated a collaboration agreement with Unitel. Unitel is the biggest distributor of performing arts, classic music, ballet, opera, um, and they're a company that sells to other networks. So it's a B2B model. They're selling to um, the ABC here in Australia, to the BBC in the UK, China TV, NHK in Japan. So 180 countries around the world. So they have a very small number of organizations they work with. They work with Berlin Philharmonic, Concert Gebau, Vienna Field, London Symphony, Covent Garden, and the only organization in this part of the world, MSO. So, And when I negotiated with them, their first question was, why would I pick you, the MSO, when, you know, I have Beethoven symphonies recorded with Berlin Field? And I said, well, you should listen to our... recording uh quality is there but it's not just that when we do a program like this year we did beethoven 9 at the opening of the season but we commissioned circa an amazing international australian based based in brisbane a circus company and we had seven uh, athletes on stage in front of the orchestra do a choreography um, following beethoven 9's music um, this is uh, this. This wasn't a major. It was it was a great success, <laughs> and it showed that actually we play the music beautifully, but yep. with with a certain touch or twist. And just uh, last year, we commissioned Deborah Chitem, First Nation, Yorta Yorta, amazing soprano composer, an acknowledgement to to the country, to the a welcome. So that, as you know, every public event, you usually have a welcome to the country or an acknowledgement of the traditional owners of the land on which we stand. Yes. And so MSO is like every other organization. We normally had a recording of an acknowledgement at the start of the concerts. And I personally felt it, um, I was sad to actually hear, you know, turn your mobile phone off, the, the exits are here, so these kinds of message, and then this message of an acknowledgement to the traditional owners of the land, but in just voiceover before the start of a concert. Yeah. So I thought that we as a music organization could do better and could commission an acknowledgement of the traditional owners of the land on which we stand, but written in music. Oh, and wow. with with the different languages of the different um, groups, when when we we tour regionally, so we commission eleven um, acknowledgement of the country, <laughs> which uh, we've premiered, and so that's we started the concert with that, which is and it was really well received, and now going around the world, these recordings are. Or what makes us um, the differentiation? It's we're so different than, let's say, the Berlin Field. They never start a concert with such a thing. They they only perform classic music. So what, what about um, if we roll back to you know, say 15, 20 years when Pavarotti broke with tradition, 
And, you know, he had his two friends become the three tenors. He had the concert with U2, Miss Sarajevo. He had James Brown, Man's World, etc. But is there any other, you know, well-known stars who will come up and sing, play, or join or accompany the orchestra? Yeah, I think it's a movement that started, as you say, a couple of decades ago, where um, the music world realized that actually uh, classic music was not taught anymore in school. So you could not think that the whole population would be very attuned to classic music and that some crossover engagement where um, partnering with amazing pop artists and the MSO has followed that train right from the get go. And this is one of the things that uh, made me come to Melbourne and the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the fact that the MSO embraces working with a variety of artists' style genres. So, for example, the MSO did the world tour with uh, Elton John, and Elton John is now a life member of the MSO. He came for 10 years to uh, Melbourne and uh, celebrated um, Christmas with our musician, but the violin of the concertmaster at that point. So we have engaged with uh, Sting, with Wynton Marsalis, with so many top artists, uh, flight facilities. It goes from DJs, um, rockers, pop stars. And this is something we take pleasure in doing. Um, for example, we've, you probably know Babe, the movie, Disney yes. movie with the little piglet. So we did the recording of that uh, soundtrack. And um, we're planning some more at this point because we're available. We can do recording. And so we have these, I think it's, it's, there's a pride in the orchestra uh, to achieve best results doing these things. And so we have a dedicated team. That's, we call them our special team. And they work year-round to develop these projects with amazing artists that are not mainstream. So it's, and it's, it's part of our DNA. While some other orchestra will say, well, we do this. So everyone does a little bit of, you know, Star Wars movies, Harry Potter, things like that. But very often the mindset is, oh, well, we do it because it's box office. It, it's great results in box office. So it's considered commercial. Yep. And there's always a Attention. push for tension yep. with musicians. MSO musicians are, um, on the average, <laughs> very proud of having done that and having done these amazing um, things. Sophie, for the benefit of the audience, if I joined MSO, uh, you're in the top 20 in the world. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. We are. <laughs> so you're in the top 20 in the world, so it's a privilege to join to join you and be accepted. What's the work regime like? And I think, uh, you know, touring you pre-COVID-19 was also a big part of uh, the role of the orchestra and also in some cases uh, playing a role for the government in broader relationships. So maybe set the scene and talk us through that because for a lot of us, we're, we're in the dark on that. With pleasure. So the MSO, um, being a top orchestra, uh, you, we engaged internationally. We were the first orchestra to tour, 1965, first tour for the MSO. Uh, first Australian orchestra to perform in Carnegie Hall, 1970. And, and then <laughs> decades of amazing projects. I've been four years and a half with the MSO. We've been every year um, touring in different countries, China, the United States last year, etc. So that's community engagement on, on the world, um, world stage. Uh, we work every time with government to try to actually, because we believe in people-to-people engagement and we can facilitate relationship 
between countries. I like uh, to think now that we don't tour like um, a one-night stand where you would be rocking up in a city, playing on stage, and then move to the next one. We try to make a difference in a community. So we engage, we have long-term collaboration where we try to partner with the, um, the local symphonies, and they're usually amazing orchestras, um, and order the university, the conservatorium. So we have we go into um, underprivileged area um, schools, a lot of educational activities. So when we tour, we don't just tour to play concert, but to engage with communities. We also understand that we can play a role in bringing business leaders yeah. from both countries together. Okay. We can facilitate a trade agreement without sitting at the table, just by engagement, the engagement we do. So we've seen um, good results of that. Yep. And we're proud to have been doing that for a while. At the end of the day, it all um, it all comes down to engaging with your community. And in our case, our community is based in Melbourne. It's yep. based in Victoria. So yep. we tour regionally and we're very proud to engage with the different communities around Victoria. Uh, we had an East Gippsland, so the, um, with the bushfires, they were really impacted. Okay. Uh, we were supposed to visit the community in the coming weeks. Now yeah. it's going to be postponed a little bit because of COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's for us, it's, it's really important. Every time we come in the community, we will engage with, let's say, the city council or the official. We will engage with the business leader of that community to see if we can actually bring some benefit to this community and help them achieve some of their goals that they have for this community. We engage with all the schools in that region. And if there is any um, Aboriginal, Indigenous um, groups, community, we make sure to engage with them. So for us, that's the way we do it. So it's, it's when I said, it's not a short engagement, let's move on to the next town. We might move on, but we will, we will give it, at morning concerts in the schools, we will do workshops, wow. we will engage with different um, groups in the community, and we listen to people. So I'm a, I'm a full-time musician. How many nights a week am I, you know, if, again, pre-COVID, how many nights a week am I actually playing or performing, sorry? A lot. And as, this, as the MD of the orchestra, I'm there a lot. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, last year, it was around 170 concerts uh, in a year. So Jeez, that's so nearly uh, one every two two days or yeah. two nights. Um, so it's a job when you when you're the CEO of an orchestra yeah, well. or when you're a musician. It's not nine to five, Monday to Friday. You it, it's it's quite obvious that you will have to perform at nights over the weekends. And same thing for me. I will have my life in the office <laughs> in the week, but I will have concerts and and functions and different events throughout the week okay. so it's in my case uh, i'm there most of the time and i would say it's three to five nights a week and in my musician's case we have 408 employees 79 permanent musicians and some 200 casuals and you could not ask 79 people to do all these 170 concerts that yep. would be too much for yep. them they need some respite it's a lot of physical uh, it's challenging physically, yep. Yep. so they need some respite. Yep. And this is why you need a big group of musicians. So we, we're quite important for the industry because 
we offer work to so many people who um, depend on the MS also. <laughs> Let me ask you a couple of business questions then. You're touring or you're playing every second night. You've got a lot of people involved. What's the margin? Oh, you're, you're going to laugh. Uh, the best in our industry, it's around 3%. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm biting it's, my tongue at the moment. That's that's hard. Three yeah. percent yeah. for the lot of, for all that work. Now, okay, that's the why is that still the case? Can you change that in any form? So there's a American economist Bomol who uh, theorized about uh, price elasticity. Yep. Uh, did a lot of research on orchestra, and orchestra are really big beasts. You need a lot of people, and there's a cost disease. You have fixed cost, yes. high cost. Yep. Your, your capital, your assets, your people, and you cannot uh, decide that, uh, well, we're lagging in productivity and this Beethoven symphony, instead of needing 57 musicians, will play it with three. Yeah, you right. can't. And you can't say, well, I'll get rid of my flute section because whatever, I don't need them. <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> so that's, that's the, the base of what we do when we perform music. It's written for a certain number of musicians, and you need that number. And as they have, it's like um, team members yes. in a sports team. You won't say, "Well, you will work part time for me, and I'll call you when I need you." And the- yeah, true. <laughs> you train your athletes, and they are members of the team. That's it. That's all. So that's the same thing for us. So um, fixed costs are high. It's mainly salaries. So permanent and casual, and that's it. So what you do is uh, you engage with a lot of stakeholders to um, increase your revenue. So you depend on earned revenues, subscription, ticket sales, etc. You try to sell your orchestra. So um, you we, we will do, uh, I don't know, uh, what we call gig yep. in the industry where yep. somebody needs a, a backing band will be there. Uh, for a fee. Yeah. Uh, you have corporate partners who come on board and have aligned shared values and will say, well, I would like to partner with you. I have something that, and it's very beneficial on both sides. We have donors, trust foundation, individual donors at from, from $20 to $1 million uh, donors that will come on board and follow the MSO. So my role is to engage with all these stakeholders and make sure that um, they're relatively happy <laughs> and they will continue engaging with the MSO. In the last few weeks, it has been extremely hard because yeah. as a society, we, we've been challenged. People yeah. have lost their jobs. Um, yeah. They've lost incomes. Um, so it's it's we are very lucky. The vast majority of our donors have stayed on board, but a lot have told us that their private uh, circumstances have changed and therefore they're going to donate smaller amount, etc. Okay, so where's the new markets then? We're still a pretty small market down here in Australia. You've also got this thing called Southeast Asia. Where, where, do, where do we sit there? Is there an opportunity to pick up market share? Or- yeah, actually, uh, it's, it's a good question. And normally... Um, people are very loyal to their local orchestra. Yeah, right, okay. And, that, and that's that's a fact around the world. Like, we are lo- loyal to our local sports team. 
if we have collaboration agreement in the Asia Pacific region, yeah. it allows us to enter a new market, to do a project on the territory of these other orchestras, but actually with their buy-in, okay. them collaborating with us, which allows us to engage with these different communities. And then if we can supplement that with digital reach, then we are in a better position. When our recordings are taken by Unitel and are sold to other networks around the world, we receive royalties. So that's a form of revenue that comes back to us. We're building this digital platform where we hope to get some new consumer who will come from around the world. Um, that, that's through a, a digital, a virtual membership where, yeah, there's maybe not a lot of chance to that you will come and sit in the hall in Melbourne to listen to the MSO, but you could, from your home in Paris or London or anywhere, uh, sit and, and listen to the MSO's program. So that's increasing the reach and the market of the MSO. When you go to the likes of the markets in Paris, uh, the US, other, and other areas in Europe, is it the expat Australians dialing in or playing, uh, or is it the new audience of the locals engaging with this new brand and different thinking from the MSO? From what we've seen so far, there's uh, some expat, but there's actually a large crowd that is interested in classic music or in music or in discovering maybe the music of, uh, of Down Under. <laughs> and yeah. um, so it's it's quite varied, but the there's a love of music. That's the first criteria with all these people who, who log on and listen and, and watch for a quite a significant time which is when you um, do stats on YouTube and you, and on YouTube you can get revenues and we're starting to get some from yeah. because we have a high level of viewers. So when you pass 100,000 for a show, this is really good. And the length um, of view is also another criteria that's really important. So we have ticked the box on both sides, which is good for us and it's, it's keeping increasing. And so now we're, we're tweaking, we're entering into a new stage of this digital strategy. Yes. And so I can't reveal everything now, but it's, uh, I'm hopeful that it will help uh, diversify our revenue as we go forward, because we are all my colleagues from all around the country and actually from around the world with all the social distancing rules, regulation. Uh, we have all assets that, that, for example, in Melbourne, uh, respecting the rules, we will only be able to admit 30% of our normal audience in the in the room. That means this is not viable financially. Yeah. You cannot make enough money. The solution, as you pointed out, is not to double the number of concerts. Yeah. There's a fatigue. You can't push too sure. much of a product in the market. So you, um, we're actually uh, thinking of scaling back, of having a little bit less concert, but yeah. having quite amazing programs, um, very meaningful, and having more reach with one program. Just straight down the line, if you didn't adapt quickly or coming to this whole idea around digital or new markets, would you guys be open at Christmas time? No. <laughs> I think that uh, we were swimming in a blue ocean, and by now, a couple of 12 weeks, 13 weeks later, it's a red ocean. There's a lot of people in that ocean. Yeah. And um, I think that we're, we're still very fragile, but we, we, uh, the MSO did not have big reserves. Yeah. And it's a, 
it's a problem in Australia with a lot of arts organization. Yep. There's not sufficient reserves. And just to, to plain language, when I started for a year and a half ago, we had the equivalent of 20 days in cash in the bank. So we could last 20 days. If you are managing a company that has 400 employees, that's not sufficient. So we work to replenish our reserve in a business where margins are super small. Yep. And so four years later, at the end of 2019, we had the equivalent of 63 days. That's still, it's great, but you don't last a long time. That's more than, we've, we've passed that 63 days. And that's the big difference that I see when compared to, for example, North America, where an emphasis on building reserve for arts organization has been there for decades. And private companies, government, et cetera, have been very careful to make sure that these organizations would build very strong reserves, yeah, right. which they're still mightily impacted as we are, but they have a, a chance of surviving because of that. So organizations that have larger reserves, and I'm not saying they're super big, but the, the biggest reserves uh, had to reach and take uh, 20 millions out of their reserves and saying this, this took 20, 30 years to build. And now they're using this and they don't know how, how long it will take before they can rebuild that. So we've been asking government to actually consider coming on board with um, reserve incentive scheme, some sort of fund of help um, to create reserve for small, medium, and large arts organization in uh, Canada. Two decades ago, or twenty years, twenty some years ago, Canadian government partnered with um, Canadian philanthropists, major donors, yeah. to create this um, matching dollar. Um, endowment program yep. uh, where as long as you fundraise above your baseline, so you had to be better, yes. <laughs> you could get matching dollar for that, what you had fundraised, and then you could set it aside in a reserve. Yep. So the, it has allowed Canadian arts organization over the last 20, let's say 25 years to actually weather recession and uh, negative events that impact um, the life of arts organization in a better way than um, arts organization here in Australia. Australia has been really lucky not to experience recession in the last 20, whatever, 27 years. Yeah. Um, now we're there, it's hurting the economy. Yeah. Um, and I, this is one thing I can say that if, if I could talk to the prime minister, I would say. Yeah, well, come on, you, you beat me to the question, so what are you gonna say? <laughs> so I've spoken with the ministers, Paul yep. Fletcher and Minister Foley here in Victoria. They're very attuned to the situation of the arts companies and arts organization. We've relentlessly knocked on the door saying we need a recovery package. And yep. in my case, I'm talking about reserves. What sort of numbers are you going with, Sophie? So maybe there might be some donors out there we can appeal to in this discussion. What are you seeking? I think it's making a radical change, making a, taking a stand that will have an impact for generations and making a change so that arts organizations that are nowadays impacted so much can, can actually thrive in the future and not find ourselves in the same position again. Just on that, Sophie, has government engaged with the whole, I guess, the cultural industry? And do you think they can do more? I hope they will do more. <laughs> they, um, at the federal level, um, the prime minister and and the, the they chose at the start to help industries across the lines mm -hmm. and and so 
and so for example the job keeper program um was really a godsend thing yes. <laughs> that helped um every arts organization that could show a loss of revenue which is i believe 99.9 percent of us yes. um and it has really helped now I will hope that the government will actually look at a package, a special package for the arts, because we will most probably be the last one to get back in the halls and get back to a normal state of business. Yep. And, and weeks and months of no earned revenues, no possibility to go out there is really hurting us a lot. One of the beauties of this whole podcast is that chief execs, senior leaders, board members, listen, this is the first time we've had someone from the arts whose teams are normally a little bit different in the way that they think. So you're dealing with a bunch of people, highly professional. Can I ask, as a leader, how did you break the news? How did you sell your message and how did you get the team on board? Communication, 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 listening to people. Um, being attuned, I, you know, it's very challenging. If you've been a musician for decades, has focus on their craft, honing their craft, and uh, you've been applauded on stage and you know that you're doing a good job and suddenly you're impacted by something that you have, you, you have no capacity to influence it or to change anything. So I, I, I do get it. I feel very sad myself that suddenly you've trained all your life to do something and you're unable to do it. Again, sports analogy, but um, the sports team, you, you're trying to play and suddenly oh, you might not play the whole year. This is really uh, discouraging. So it's been a, a long journey, a tough one, because working in the arts is working with ego. <laughs> very true. <laughs> and, and people who are um, very attuned and conscious of their, their value, their worth, which is fair enough. And so you have to have a lot of patience. <laughs> and keep re repeating the same message. I found that simple tricks like, for example, um, numbering the number of updates I wrote to my employees so that they could say, hey, it's the 30th time that she's writing to us about this. I try and engage to, with smaller groups, the leadership of the orchestra, the, uh, the, the players committee, the union committee, uh, and so on. I was not hoping or expecting that anyone would come and say, yay, so fun. But um, to my pleasure, they all came on board uh, or to my, I'm very grateful that they actually followed me on this digital strategy and they can see the benefit of first engaging to get a large number of people to listen to the MSO and, and then go to a second stage of um, something a little bit different, which is coming. So that, that has been the, the journey. And it, I think it, it will take some more time. Um, it's been difficult, but um, that's, that's, you know, I do get it. And, and I'm just focused on making sure the organization will survive. And it's quite interesting. I've read a lot. I'm, I'm curious by nature. I read um, McKinsey, HBR, um, yep. a lot of uh, Boston Consulting Group, uh, New York Times, the newspaper, AFR, etc. On the morning, that's my routine. I, I read a lot. Yep. Um, and in time of crisis, you, you, the best models is to break with tradition 
and for example uh, have a multidisciplinary uh, team that will work in a different way with not the same model as just a couple of weeks or months before. So when COVID-19 happened, we decided to shift from the, the, the type of management style we had to a different one. And it has actually been very helpful okay. to create a multidisciplinary team that would, so creating one team that would be focused on the future and this keep the music going program yep. delivery uh, on the digital space. And then we created other teams that would work on different things. So that's been quite an adventure. It has worked well with some glitches, which is fair enough and normal, but yeah. it's, it's, and I've been saying all along to everyone, the mantra I've learned from a good friend, um, Canadian who told me when I left for Germany long ago, <laughs> Sophie, a challenge is an opportunity. <laughs> and it's actually true. Every challenge brings a lot of opportunities. So it's it's just stepping back, taking a deep breath, and then saying, okay, instead of panicking and saying, ah, this is terrible, how can we turn this to our advantage? And th this is what I'm proud that my team did it. So we, um, we could see on the Friday, March 13, Prime Minister announced that on Monday, March 16, yep. gathering of 500 would be uh, would be forbidden. Yeah. So that was the Friday, and on the Monday we had a normal concert with two thousand people in Hemerald. So we reached out to our customer and said, "Sorry, can't be delivering the concert the way it used to be because of the re the, the new rules." Yep. Um, and I negotiated with the CEO of the Art Center, was really um, helpful in us staying on stage. They were bumping out, so closing the hall at midnight. And at six in the evening, we had all our musicians on stage and we live streamed for the first time this amazing performance. And our audience that had bought a ticket may have logged in and uh, watched us on MSO YouTube channel. And as I said earlier, by the end of the, the concert, we had 5,500 people who had watched the whole concert, which is quite amazing. And then the next morning when we woke up, people from five continents had watched and had sent thousands of comments and positive, like, you know, I'm watching from London in lockdown and this is a piece of joy and yeah, this is so great. And so we've received positive comments from tens of thousands of comments by now. And it's quite, it's quite touching and it actually... Um, and every time I doubt and I'm thinking, oh, my God, are we going, going to survive this? Are we going to get you? Am I going to make a mistake here and so on? I just look at these comments and it cheers me up. <laughs> so, so the actual, I guess, the, the business model is never going to be the same. Is that, what, is that what you're saying going forward? I'm convinced of that. From the onset, I said to the board, uh, we have to prepare for a different future. Okay. The game changer. like. Um, I was in North America when 9-11 happened mm -hmm. and um, airport security, public space security changed dramatically from yep. that point on. Uh, when SARS virus hit in North America, it was the, the start of e-commerce, big boom right. uh, at that point. Um, if, so if we look at the different um, events, major events that have happened in our past uh, 
short past. Um, every time it has had a major impact on our society, on the delivery of business and so on. So in our case, I think we would be fooled to plan to go back in the hall the way it was and keep doing the same old, same old thing. This is an opportunity to transform. I still believe that in 50 years from now, people will want to go in a room and listen to an orchestra because it's the biggest band you can create yeah. with human beings. It's experiencing the best of what human can do yep. and the pleasure of this live sound coming towards you, the, the vibrations. Yep. <laughs> is something you cannot experience elsewhere. So I don't think that will disappear, but we will probably segue a lot into the digital space and world. The other thing I was going to ask you about is that in London, the National Theatre, they, as you know, have been playing Shakespeare and Tom Hiddleston has done it. A fundraiser. Yeah, and receiving terrific reviews. Now, some of the commentary you're reading about that is it's theatre, opera, orchestras, are in sometimes prohibitive via cost for um, mums and dads out there. I guess you've got to think through this model is, you know, how do you manage that? Because I'm still going to pay for the experience, obviously, to go into the theatre, but how do you manage those who are loyal to you versus those who are coming in and streaming but paying for maybe a tenth of the fee? Mm, I think you have to um, – good question – to engage with your customers, be focused on your audiences. Um, our success over the last four years has been to focus on audience diversity, so opening up to new new audiences with different price points where okay. not everyone's capable of paying the same amount for yep. tickets. And the interest to see the same kind of concert is not there for everyone. So we focus on increasing our reach with younger adults um, and Actually, I think the, the, the proof is in the pudding. Yep. We went from approximately 200,000 people in 2016 to 400,000 people who have experienced live concerts and paid for it. Wow. And it's an increase of 41% in um, earned revenues, when ticket sales, um, the reach, so online. 2.6 million, I think, in 2016. We're now at 5.4 million in Australia. So we're the orchestra, so recently, that has engaged with the most people around the country. Is it going to be, therefore, a, an opportunity here to create a renaissance? I hope. <laughs> and we but, got, see but I guess you've got to be aggressive in this. You've got a certain time, haven't you, Sophie, at the end of the day? There's a window of opportunity here. Because if yes. you don't seize it, it's some gone. other orchestra is going to, right? Or some other piece yeah. of music or entertainment is going to take that space, right? So yes. I guess timing, pace, focus. Yeah. And having strategies, very specific strategies for these different type of audience. When you engage in your community across Victoria, you engage in a different way. When you engage, for example, we have created um, a program, the Muso uh, membership. And Perfect. it's for... 18 to 35 years old. So we've listened. Um, and this was a program created before I came on board with the help of um, a major uh, foundation. And at that point, maybe five or 600 people had joined the membership. By now, nowadays, it's 6,000. We listen to their suggestion and what they like. 
So they like engaging directly with musicians, the backstage experience, the let's have a beer with the musicals. Uh, they come to classic music, but they also come to a lot of other things. So we listen to what they like and all, everything special we do, they're there. <laughs> and they really enjoy it. So that's it. I think it's listening to your audience, your market, your, your customers, and then um, trying to deliver at a high level of excellence, because that's one of our characteristics. It's when we do things, we try to do it very well. Sophie, it's been a really fascinating chat, but there's always one final question we ask every guest. If you were to look back at that young Sophie as she packed her bags and went over to, to Germany, what advice would you look back and give her now? Well, I think I would tell myself, relax. Don't take life so seriously. <laughs> when we want to achieve things, um, we're very focused. I've come to terms with the fact that I'm... I want to achieve great things. I work hard. I will put extra energy to deliver, get the results. I focus on strategy, but it, the delivery is also extremely important. You can have the best strategy and get zero results. <laughs> so that's that's part of who I am, but I've I've learned actually to to relax, to embrace things and to say, well, there's I can control this and then there's the rest of the world and you have to uh, live your life to the fullest every day and and try to not be so serious. <laughs> well, Sophie, all I can say is thanks for joining us today. We've, we've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to hearing if the government does come to support and other donors come to support. And we look forward by the time we're playing it to see those Aussie Rules players standing up with the scarf around their neck. Yes. Thank you very much. It was lovely. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>